The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to John uh, chapter 2, and we're going to be starting in verse 1 together. I am super excited uh, to begin our new series today. Uh, We are going to be focusing in on the miracles Jesus performed during his roughly three-year ministry. And uh, before we jump into the first recorded miracle from the Master, uh, let's just take a moment to define what a miracle is and think through why we would focus in on them during this series. I think, I was really praying about it, I think we could take for granted that we all know what a miracle is, and there's... There's a lot of definitions out there, and, and some of them aren't good. So let's just take a moment and, and, from a biblical perspective, kind of determine what a miracle is, and then let's think together about why we would focus a whole teaching series on it, okay? So there are many different definitions given for what a miracle is, and that's from a lot of different sources. Um, the best and most thoughtful that I have come across is from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And uh, the, the next few things here, there's, I'm going to give you Wayne Grudem's definition and then a few others. And most of this I pulled from a very helpful resource called Bible.org. So just so you know, you can go check that out later. So here's, here's Grudem's definition of a miracle. A miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. I know for some of you that might seem unnecessarily wordy, but I'm going to give you a few other definitions that are out there, and we're going to talk about why I think Grudem has been very thoughtful in why he's presented this definition, okay? So, first of all, another common definition of a miracle that you'll hear uh, is an event that is impossible to explain by natural causes. Some people just leave it at that, an event unable to be explained by natural causes. However, this definition is inadequate for the following reasons. First of all, it does not include God as the one who brings about the miracle, right? There are lots of things that maybe we're not smart enough to explain by natural causes, uh, and that's not necessarily a miracle. A miracle is something God does, and so we need to make sure we say that when we're defining what a miracle is. The second reason that definition comes a little short is it assumes that God does not use some natural causes when he works in an unusual or amazing way. And thus it assumes, again, that God only occasionally intervenes in the world, right? So some... Some definitions of a miracle have kind of a deistic view that um, if, if you say it's, if you don't, if you're not careful, you can make it seem like only ever once in a while is God working in the world, and, and, and that being when he does a miracle, and that's not true, right? The Bible says that God makes the rain fall, right? He's in charge of everything. He's, he's in, he's not, the, the deistic idea that God kind of set the world to spin and backed up and isn't involved is, is not the way the Bible presents him, and so we want to be careful when we talk about miracles not to give people the idea that uh, God is, is somehow detached. He's doing things all the time. Uh, he's in the midst of all that's going on. And so I'm going to give you one more definition, um, and that's this. God working in the world without using means to bring about the result he wishes. The problem with that is if, if, if we speak of God working without means, it leaves us with very few, if any, miracles in the Bible. For example, the miracle that we're going to examine today Jesus uses the means of water that's already there and then turns it into wine. And so um, sometimes, you know, we know God has the ability to create out of nothing. That's what he did at the very beginning. He spoke and created everything, right? Uh, But sometimes he uses, he he does things different ways, right? Sometimes he'll include means that are already there. um, The time that he fed uh, roughly 15,000 people, right? Uh, 5,000 families, uh, you know, there was, there was a little boy's lunch there, and, and he used that means and then multiplied it, and so he didn't just poof out of, out of the air. And so miracles can include natural means. That's the whole point there. That's why that definition doesn't quite capture what it is a miracle um, is, right? So there's that. The definition we're going to work from is the, is the one uh, that I gave you earlier, which we'll talk about again. What is the difference then between miracles and magic, right? I think some people could be confused by that. Some people would use those words interchangeably. Uh, And when I say magic, I just want to make sure you understand what I mean. I don't mean like when I tuck a quarter in between my fingers and pull it out from behind my son's ear, who's three, and his eyes get super big and he thinks I have powers, right? Um, That's not what I mean. I don't mean sleight of hand. I mean supernatural magic like witchcraft, which is, is a real thing. Um, whether or not you've had personal experience with that, I, I assure you it does happen. Um, 
A major difference between magic and miracles is that magic draws upon power that is not directly from God, and miracles are the result of God's power intervening in the world. Uh, Magic or witchcraft is an attempt to go around God, to access knowledge or power, or to cause something to happen. Actually, when the power of God is at work, demonic forces and practitioners of magic will be put down. We see this in Acts 19. Uh, It records the time when a large number of Ephesians were saved uh, through the preaching of Paul and Silas, and all of those new believers destroyed their books of witchcraft. Let me just read this to you. This is from Acts 19. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Remember, books were very valuable then because they didn't just print them off a press, right? Somebody had to hand write them, and so... These people, when they heard the good news about Jesus, realized there wasn't going to be a blend here. I'm not going to be able to have this white magic type stuff that people talk about, uh, trying to summon any other kind of supernatural power to get things done or access some type of mystical knowledge. And and going around God is always the work of the demonic and not something that should be messed with by those who have put their faith in Jesus for salvation. Amen? It's a good spot for you to say amen, all right? So burn your magic books if you got them, all right? We'll, we'll, we'll have a bonfire. Just let us know if you still got some of those you need to get rid of. Praise God. Next question, do we believe God does miracles today? Do we believe that? The short answer is yes, but let's qualify that, okay? So if a miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself, then... Uh, We absolutely believe God is still answering prayers, and he is sovereignly intervening in order to bear witness to the truth of his gospel and his everlasting kindness. I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, First of all, there are verified reports coming out of the Middle East of Jesus visiting people in their dreams, people who hate him and who do violence to those who love him, those people waking up, repenting, and being saved. Um, And that's not just you know, somebody said on the internet, there, there are seriously good uh, sources of information that that is happening a lot. It's not surprising, um, especially since a lot of times in those cultures there's a heavy emphasis put on dreams, and Jesus is a great missiologist. I'm sure he would understand that that would be an effective way to reach those people. So we're, we're hearing a lot of that. Um, a little bit closer to home, we, we have a nursery full of babies in the back who have mamas that were told Those children could never be born due to physical complications and or limitations. And so if you don't believe in miracles, come hang out at our nursery in the back. And we'll ask the moms if it's okay, but you can touch a miracle, right? we got a bunch of miracle babies in this church. It's pretty cool. Um, I would call your attention to the most important evidence of God's continued willingness to perform miracles. And that's all of the people sitting around you right at this moment. Let Let me read you this. In John 14, verse 12, Jesus makes an amazing statement. He says this. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. This can be perplexing, right, when we match this statement up with the reality we see. Um, if, we, if we think scripturally for a second, just the biblical record, we have no record of the apostles doing works of greater magnitude than Jesus, right? Let's be honest. None of them raised someone from the dead several days after they have been laid in the tomb, like Jesus did with Lazarus. None of them fed multitudes, tons and tons of people with just a little bit of food. Now they did, there was healings recorded. Um, Paul did, you know, survive being bit by a serpent. There there were miraculous things. God did bless the ministry of the apostles in order to uh, affirm them and kind of let people know that they were indeed working by the power of God. But we don't have records of them doing some of the stuff to the degree that King Jesus did. Um, However... What they were able to do is the scope of their ability, empowered by the Spirit, to preach and spread the full gospel was beyond what Jesus could accomplish during his life. Think about it, right? And and, and Jesus, it's pretty clear what he's saying if we think about it. They will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. What happened when Jesus went to the Father? He sent someone to help us. Who was it? The Holy Spirit. So when we, be, we then are unleashed upon the world with the power of the Holy Spirit with us to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, Jesus is saying, one of the greater works that you're going to do is exactly what's happening right here. That down through, echoing down through the generations, people are going to believe this incredible message and a, a church, a bride for Christ is going to rise up out of all the peoples of the earth. And so 
That is an incredible, miraculous work that should not be downplayed. Amen. The fact that we exist, sit here today, gathered for the worship of the King of Glory, is a miracle. It is a proper use of the term, 100%. And uh, we have the precious privilege today of participating in God's miraculous work of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Praise God. It is, it is undeniably miraculous every single time God rescues and redeems a sinner who is spiritually dead and makes them alive in him. And uh, we get to see that and we get to be a part of that by God's incredible grace. Uh, we need to be careful not to fall into either of the common ditches that exist when it comes to miracles. Okay? One is to deny that God does miracles and the other is to call everything a miracle. Right? If you leave here and go through the drive-thru at Taco Bell and they accidentally give you an extra Crunchwrap Supreme, that is not a miracle. Okay? That is a mistake. It's another M word. They're close, but it's not a miracle. I know some of you will have much more excitement in that moment than I see gathered here with God's people ever, and we need to talk about that. It's a problem. Um, but that is not a miracle, uh, and what you should do in that moment is go back and tell them and let them decide if you get to keep that happy mistake. Just full disclosure, that's what you should do. Not drive away praising Jesus, right? Cranking up the radio on 93.3 like, oh, Lord! You know, two-fisting your, your crunch wraps, right? The Lord been good to me, right? No. And I just want to say this. This is 100%. This is true. I'm, I'm speaking from my heart right now. If I see a picture of a Crunchwrap Supreme online from one of you with the hashtag miracle, I'm going to die inside a little bit, okay? I just want you to know that. Hebrews says you should make it easy for me to lead you and love you. Don't do that, please. Do not hashtag miracle your extra Crunchwrap. If for no other reason than to save me the heartache of having to see it, okay? Um, I would present this to you, even if God knew you were going to pull out of that drive-thru and you were going to see someone starving, uh, you know, the next block that needed that crunch wrap, and that's why you got the extra one, um, I still think that's a little bit short of miracle status. What, what should happen in that situation is you should give that extra one to that person, and we should absolutely thank God for providing it, but I believe God is constantly working in situations like that, and that is not the quite the same as feeding 5,000 families with a crunch wrap. You understand the difference? You see the difference there, okay? Miracles are real, and they are special, and we should speak of them and treat them that way. That's, that's my point, okay? They are real, but they are special. It's something unique that God does in an undeniable way, all right? So we've established now what miracles are. Um, why then would we focus a whole series on the ones Jesus performed? Why would we do that? Well, here's why. Because Colossians 1.15 tells us that the Son, that being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The life and ministry of Jesus gives us the clearest view of who God is and what God is like. And so we want to explore what the miracles Jesus performed reveal to us about the character and the nature of our God. That's why we're going through this. We believe as we look intently and study together intently these miracles of Jesus, we're going to learn something about our God. We're going to learn about his character and nature through that, okay? So let's read John chapter 2. I know that was a long introduction. I had to kind of set the table for the entire series. Thank you for enduring. Uh, but let's read John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go to verse 11 together, all right? John 2 verse 1. Here we go. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. 
This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Praise God for his word. All right, so first off, let's deal with the issue that unfortunately tends to overshadow the depth and beauty of this first miracle that Jesus performed. These particular verses have sadly become a battleground for the war over alcohol consumption by Christians, okay? Um, And we're not going to spend much time on this, and I seriously implore you to realize that this is not the reason this miracle was recorded, to give us a debate point, all right? Um, And and so I'm asking you that no matter where you land on, on these issues, please don't let that be the main focus when you study or think about this event, or even the fact that we're studying it together now. Don't let this be the main focus. We need to address it. Uh, because I think it could be distracting not to, because it's kind of right there. So we're going to address it, but we're not going to do an exhaustive job on it. We're going to say some things, and we're going to move on to what this is actually about, okay? So let's do that together. Um, There are those who believe that consuming alcohol in any amount is sinful, and so this text is troubling for them. Uh, I would say Jesus was a pretty big accessory to this sin if he created 150 gallons of wine, right? I mean, if you do the math of the stone pots, that's that's a lot of wine, right? Like, think about your milk jug, take 150 of them, stack them up here, you got, you got a bunch of booze, okay? So that, that would be a problem. Uh, so what that has done, it's led a lot of people, and sometimes really smart people, uh, to claim that the word wine here is actually referring to a non-alcoholic beverage. Essentially, Jesus made 150 gallons of Welch's here, um, and that's, that's the story, okay? So the Greek word here, well, what does the Greek say? The Greek word is oinos, and it's wine, friends. It's, it, that is the word. Uh, everywhere else, that's the word, all right? It, it, and it's, it means what it means. Um, it's used here. It means wine with alcohol in it, 100%. There is, there is no good evidence. And let me, I'll call it There's no good evidence in my view, I think in the view of a lot of faithful Bible teachers, no good evidence in what we know about the language, the word used, the context, what was happening, the culture in the time, or even in the text to lead us to believe that this was grape juice, okay? Let me just give you one thing out of this. Again, I'm not going to do an exhaustive job defending one way or the other. Just look at verse 10 with me, okay? And let's just see what what does the text lead us to think about what's happening here, okay? Verse 10. This is the head waiter tastes the wine, and he calls the bridegroom over, verse 10, and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Why do you think, typically... They save the bad wine for the end. This isn't rocket science. It's because after you've drank a bunch of the good wine, you're loosened up a little bit, the taste buds aren't necessarily as perceptive, and then they bring out the bad stuff, and nobody notices and or cares at that point, okay? That's that's what's being said very clearly. Uh, So there's that. Now, um, I just want to say a couple things at this juncture. Number one, and I mean this. This is a third-tier issue at best, okay? When I say that, there's first-tier issues. There are things that I will, I will argue over because they are pillars of our faith. Is Jesus Christ the only way to uh, be forgiven of sin and reconciled to the Father? Absolutely yes. Is the Bible God's authoritative word, and should we obey it? Absolutely yes. Um, and, and, and on and on, right? There are first-tier issues. This is a third-tier issue. I wouldn't even put this in the second tier. And so if someone has heard someone very smart teach that this is grape juice and they are convinced about it, I'm not going to waste time debating it. And I hope you wouldn't either. Unless it's a friend, you guys got nothing to do, okay? Two, number two, we do have reason to believe that the alcohol content of the wine in that day was likely much less as it was not refined as much. And so someone could drink more of it without committing what the Bible does say is absolutely a sin, and that is drunkenness, okay? According to Galatians 5.21, which lists drunkenness as a deed of the flesh, and Ephesians 5.18, which says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, and many other verses, according to them, getting drunk is a sin. You say that plainly, okay? Now, this is a hot-button issue, and like I said, I don't want to lose the heart of this passage in these tall weeds. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a basic, our basic biblical position 
If you have more questions about this, and I mean this, this is not one of those times where I'm saying, come talk to me afterwards and like we're going to fight about it. Like seriously, if you have questions about this, I realize there's a lot to be said, and I'm not going to hit it all, so I'm, I'm totally open to talking about this because there can be confusion surrounding it. But um, So come talk later about it, or you can email, or however you want to get a hold of us, we'll, we'll chat about it. But I'm going to give you the basic biblical position, a few thoughts, and we're going to move on to what this is really about. Okay, so we do not believe consuming alcohol within the parameters given by the scriptures is a sin. Shouldn't be too controversial. We believe due to certain tendencies and personality traits, like a tendency for abuse uh, or addiction, it would be a sin for some people to consume alcohol at all. Is that simple enough to understand? Some people have a tendency to abuse it, whether that's genetic, whether that's environmental, doesn't really matter. If that's your tendency, the Lord may deal with you in an individual way, and it may be sinful for you to mess with it. That's absolutely possible. Okay, uh, We also believe drunkenness, which properly defined as any change in normal thought or behavior due to a substance, that's important, is not the only boundary God gives for partaking of alcohol properly in a biblical paradigm, right? Uh, we believe that consideration for those who may struggle or have a weaker conscience regarding alcohol is clearly commanded, okay? So I'm going to give you, I think that's a, that's a linchpin and maybe something different than you'll hear other places, so I'm going to qualify that and we're going to move on. 1 Corinthians 8 <clears throat> discusses the responsibility of those who partake in Christian liberty. Okay, so there are some things that are permissible now because of Christ um, that maybe weren't in past times. There is liberty in Christ, okay? Um, the example Paul uses is eating meat sacrificed to idols. That's in, in 1 Corinthians 8, that's what he's dealing with. But the principles absolutely apply to what we're talking about. The, the umbrella is Christian liberty. He just picks the specific example. So here's what he says. Here's his argument. He says, the idols are nothing, and so Christians are free to eat the meat, sacrifice the idols. And then he says this. I need you to listen carefully. I'm going to read a fair amount of scripture here. I want you to track with me because this is really important. So 1 Corinthians 8, I'm going to start in verse 7. So he says, it's okay to eat the meat. Those idols don't actually exist. It's not that big of a deal. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Pretty serious. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Uh, I believe Romans 14 is, is the same line of reasoning, and it's employed, and you'll, you'll, you'll see as well that I'm not making a stretch, because some people might say, well, he's only talking about meat sacrifice to idols there. He, he's not, but, but okay, then, then let me read you this. Track with me. This is Romans 14. So then each of us, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Do you think I'm stretching this is the same line of reasoning? Sounds pretty familiar, right? I, I'm asking seriously. I want you to be able to go with me here. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. But they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. 
because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. I know that was a lot of verses. I'm hoping you were able to track with me. Here's the overall point. The Bible does not allow for those who choose not to partake of alcohol to judge harshly those who do according to biblical boundaries. And it does not allow for those who do partake not to care about how their liberty may affect other people. Love and preference for the good of the other is the rule. That is the summary of those two sets of verses. Love and preference for the good of the other is the rule. And so that needs to be considered when it comes to these things. For those who do partake of this liberty, they need to understand that they can create a stumbling block in more than one way. Not just by tempting or offending someone who believes it is a sin to drink alcohol, but by encouraging sinful behavior in someone who believes drinking alcohol is not a sin. How could you do that? If you're drinking alcohol with somebody and flirting with the boundaries of drunkenness or not speaking up when someone else is, you may be unintentionally affirming their behavior and failing your responsibility to speak the truth in love. Does that make sense? Good. Thank you. I thought that was going to be harder. It wasn't. Great. Let's keep moving. <laughs> like, whoo, slid under that one. All right. So, okay, so that's for those of you that, that do choose to partake. For those who choose not to drink alcohol, you need to remember that if you judge harshly those who do within biblical boundaries or try to make the Bible say something it doesn't to back your position, your sin of pride and sense of superiority is actually the exact kind of sin Jesus got the most angry about. Who did Jesus give the hardest time to? Women caught in adultery? People in the gutter struggling? No, it was the Pharisees who added a bunch of rules and made, made constructs and put heavy weights upon people and, and made them do things that God never asked them to do or made them not do things God never asked them not to do. Uh, Jesus told the Pharisees they were whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. He said things to them like, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape hell? He didn't say that to the woman caught in adultery. He told her to quit sinning, for sure. He didn't play games with her, but... You want to see the master get ticked off, it's, it's pride, and it's a sense of superiority, like what I'm doing or not doing is better. Okay, be careful about that. Be careful about trying to make these scriptures back your personal conviction. There are certain things, friends, this is what it comes down to. There are certain things that come down to a matter of conscience. And for some people, the Bible is very clear. For some people, one activity may be a sin, and for someone else, it, it, it could not be. And so you can't take and project your conscience about a given issue upon somebody else without getting in trouble with the Lord. We good? Nobody ran out. Sweet. All right, so that's, that's in no way an exhaustive treatment of those issues. You're like, oh, I thought you were only going to say a little bit about it. I promise that is a little bit. There, there's a lot more that could be said, a lot more details that we could touch, but we're not going to because that's not even what this, this set of scriptures is about, okay? So... Um, those issues are not the point of this story, so let's dive in and see what we learn about our God through this incredible miracle at the wedding of Cana, okay? So the first thing I think we can pull out of this is that Jesus cares about the little details of our life, okay? So it's on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And so I think uh, it's, we need to understand that uh, G, this is Jesus' first miracle, and it, it really bothers many commentators that this was his first exertion of miraculous power to make sure there was wine at a wedding. Uh, nobody was dying. There was no sickness. There was no withered hand, no deaf ears. What is going on here? Why is this the first thing Jesus uh, kind of comes on the scene and uses miraculous power to, to bring help to, right? So... Um, I think, first of all, we probably miss a little bit that this probably seems like less of a big deal to us than it was to them. So in that time, weddings lasted longer. They could be anywhere up to a week. It was a really long party. And there were, um, there were certain expectations surrounding hospitality that led to some pretty high standards of expectation. And so the fact that this wedding feast was about to run out of wine would have really reflected badly on uh, especially the young guy getting married, the person that kind of was supposed to be throwing the party. And so it would have been a really big issue for him. He would have been 
And you've got to remember, these are small communities, right? This is not like two million people in Metro Cincinnati. This is a village of people, maybe a couple hundred. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody would have known. You remember when Joe got married and ran out of wine? That was a huge bummer. What a loser, right? And so this would have been a big deal for him. It would have been a social scar for a long time. And so uh, maybe the rest of his life. However, though all of that is true, it's still not that big of a deal, right? Like, it's not a life and death type situation. Um, it's going to matter deeply to that couple and to that family. And it seems to some degree that maybe um, Mary Jesus' mother knew this family or had some connection because she cared about it too and brought the matter to the attention of the Lord. And so uh, it's, it, it was a big deal, but, but not, it doesn't seem, can we just be honest, it doesn't seem like a big enough deal for Jesus to step into his miracle-making ministry, right? For him to begin to exert miraculous divine power towards a wedding running out of wine. Um, but so I think part of what we see in that is how much for this couple it was a big deal in the grand scheme of everything, right? Like all of God's redemptive purposes in the world, everything going on everywhere, this one little event and this one little podunk town of Cana is, is, is just not that big of a deal. It's a, it's a minor blip. It's a piece of dust uh, as far as everything that's going on in all the cosmos. And, and Jesus, Jesus he, he exerts effort towards it. He, he cares about it. And I think we, we need to see that Jesus does care about the little details of our life. And, and I, don't know, I don't know if you've found this to be true or not. Um, I think some of you struggle to believe it, and, and you miss out on some of what it is available to you in a relationship with God to believe that he cares about the, the, the small things you care about. Um, of course, to some, you know, sometimes when we bring things to the Lord, what he's going to do by his grace and mercy is he's going to show us that that's not that big of a deal and, and bring our attention back to something that is a bigger deal. But sometimes those little things you care about, God, God will just graciously come and help you with. And I, I hope you've experienced that. I, I know for certain that I have. I know that uh, most of you know, if you don't, you're about to find out that I, I do um, various types of contracting work and whatnot, and so that, that puts me in situations where I'm, I'm doing plumbing every once in a while, and of all of the different trades, plumbing can be the most frustrating. If you've ever tried to mess with it, do like a little DIY project or whatever, it's just like there's that one little drip or the screw, the you know, threads get stripped, or a lot of times I'm working on old stuff and it'll be like super corroded, and uh, there's been so many times where I've just got ultra like frustrated like and, and you'd think after a while I would learn to not let myself get there but just so upset to the point where I know I'm going to end up breaking something worse and and I've I've literally felt just this this gracious extension of mercy to me and the Lord just remind me like hey man did you think about asking me for help and I know you guys know Jesus was a carpenter but I promise you man he was a plumber too because he has helped me so many times in situations where I was stuck and I'm talking hours, I'm getting frustrated because I'm going to be losing money, this shouldn't have took this long, somebody else is now waiting on me, and it's like, oh, you know, and, and, and when I do that, guys, I promise, I'm not, this is not preacher, uh, make-believe stories. When I, if I'll take a breath, say, Lord, please help me with this, either some idea I didn't think of, how, how to accomplish that, oftentimes will come to me, or I'll just go back at it one more time, and, and wouldn't you know it? This time, man, that, that stripped thread moves, or this time, that, that handle that was about to bust off, it just happens to come, and so I just, I know he cares about little dumb things. What does is, what is my little plumbing job have to do in the midst of all that God's doing in the world today? It means nothing, right, really, but it means something to me, and I mean something to him, and so he gets involved, like he cares, right? Um, I asked Natalie this, this morning if she had had any experiences. First of all, I said, do you believe God cares about little things in your life, and I thought I knew the answer she would give me, and thankfully she, she did. Sometimes she has to hesitate. She doesn't like me to quiz her. So, um, but it wasn't really a quiz. Like, it was a pretty simple one. And so I said, do you, you know, what, tell, me, tell me a story that makes you, validates that for you. And, uh, we, were either, we were either still pursuing each other for marriage, um, or we had just, just recently got married, and um, she used to struggle. She waited tables um, at Skyline, and uh, so she used to be the one bringing little plates of cheesy happiness to your table, and uh, um, she used to get fever blisters a lot, and so that when you're serving, that can be, you know, kind of, they're never fun, right? Fever blisters are always a bummer, but serving people food, and you're talking to them pretty close, whatever, so it's just a bummer, so she, she felt one coming, and she, she stood in the mirror one day, and 
and just prayed and asked God to take that thing away. And she stood in that mirror and, and by faith just, just kept, kept asking the Lord to address the issue. And I can attest to this. That one went away and she's never had another outbreak of a fever blister. And if you have those, you know, typically, you know, um, you get sick or something happens that, that tends to come up. Uh, and so, I mean, again, a, a minor thing, right? It's not like she was about to die or whatever, or it was even a serious medical issue. It was just, it was an inconvenience. It was a bother. It was kind of a small detail, but she took it to the Lord and trusted that, that he would care about it. And, and he did. And he helped her. And so I, I sincerely hope, and I'm just submitting to you, I sincerely hope in your life you've been able to trust the Lord with little things and seen him just graciously answer you in those. If you haven't, I, I would implore you to do that, to believe uh, what, what Jesus exhibits here about the character of God, that it doesn't have to be a major thing. He's not bothered, right? We're not dealing with a God with limited resources here, and that's why he can mess with your little stuff and my little stuff and, and the little stuff of everyone who loves him, right? Because he is omnipotent. He's not, he's not taxed by our needs, and he, he actually desires, um, like a good father would, for us to bring those things to him. And so I would, I would submit that to you and, and hope that... Uh, whether, you know, at one time in your life you've, you, you believe that and acted upon it and trusted God with little things, seen the blessing of doing that, and you've gotten away from it, I would, I would ask you to, to just consider um, coming to God again with those things. Maybe you've never done that, and, and I would just, I would say to you, uh, this, this miracle speaks to the fact that our God is not only, only concerned with what uh, we would consider real big uh, impressive or important things. He cares about the little details. What a loving God. What, is, what else does that say about him, that he would be concerned with details like that? He's so good, friends. So good to us. What's, what's another thing we can, we can understand about our God based on what we see Jesus do here in this situation at this wedding? We, can, we see that Jesus can be trusted completely. So the first thing I told you is that Jesus cares about the little details of our lives. The second is that Jesus can be trusted completely. How do I see that? Well, I see that here because um, when, it, when it says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Here's, here's something amazing that you could miss. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there have been a lot of different ways that people have seen this, but there's there's probably just one faithful way to see it. First of all, Jesus does make a statement, and then he doesn't say to her, Mom, Mother. It's, he uses no term like that. This is still a term of respect. It's not like if I called my mother woman, because I think, you know, maybe you guys don't know my mom, but if I called my mom woman, I'd be eating some of my teeth, okay? So, and I'm 32, and that's probably still true. So I'm, I'm not saying that to her uh, unless I got distance between me and her. So but So it's not quite as harsh as it sounds, but it's also not as endearing as maybe you would expect from the Lord. Um, and so he does, in saying that, he is making a distinction. He is letting her know at this point there's, there is a difference. He still respects and love her, loves her, but there is a difference in the way they're going to relate to each other. Okay, She is his mother, but he is also the Lord of glory, and that needs to be considered in the way that they interact with each other. The second thing to understand is when he says... Um, my hour has not yet come. Some translations don't say my hour. They'll say time or something like that. It's important, that word hour, because if you go through, every time Jesus is talking about my hour, he's referring to one event, the hour of his death. And so it's, it's almost undeniable that we would understand that what's on the mind of the Lord as he's attending this wedding the hour of his death is upon his mind. And why would that be? Well, he's at a wedding. He should be partying. Well, He's thinking about the fact that one day he is going to have a wedding. Jesus has promised a wedding to his bride, the church, and naturally in that flow of thought is going to be the cost of what it's going to be for him in order to have that wedding. And so this is on the mind of the master, and that's part of why he responds to her this way. Woman, why am I worried about that wine? My hour has not yet come. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing that yet. So many times people have thought that this meant, they've looked at this and said, Jesus said, it's not my time to do miracles yet, and and Mary was able to kind of twist his arm and get him to do it. That's, that doesn't seem to be what happens here, because this, when, he's, when he responds to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Does she say, now, Jesus Christ, I am your mother, and you will fix this problem, right? Does, does she respond that way? Absolutely not. 
How does she respond? We can learn something from this. Let's read it one more time. He says what he says, and then his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. There's some incredible power in this, and and we can learn something about the way that we make requests to the Lord and how it is we trust him. She She doesn't... go and, and de- make more demands of him or whatever. She, make, she sets her request at the feet of her son, who is also her Lord, right? You gotta, we got to understand, Mary, Mary was there when the angels showed up and told her what was going on with this miraculous virgin pregnancy, okay? So she knows, I don't know if she totally has the entirety of the picture, but she knows this is not her son, there's something abnormal and unique and, 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 and miraculous and powerful about him. So she understands all that. What, what does she do? She turns around and says to the servants, whatever he says to do, do it. And she leaves it at that. She doesn't, she doesn't vex about it. She, she brought the request. She, she made Jesus aware of the issue, brought, and in so doing, made a request. He responded the way he responded. She didn't argue. She didn't cry. She didn't throw a fit. She said, hey, if he tells you guys to do something, do it. And she left it there at the feet of the master, trusting that whatever he did, whether he did do something about it or didn't do something about it, it was going to be the right thing. Whoo, does that say something to you? I hope it does. I hope you see that Mary's response should be our response. Because sometimes we're going to bring things to the Lord. We're going to, we don't really make him aware of anything, right? But um, the Bible says that we should bring our, our petitions, our prayers, our concerns with thanksgiving to him. And so when we bring those things... Um, we need to know that Jesus can be trusted completely. And so even if that initial response from him is not uh, what we would hope for or what we would expect, we need to be able, like Mary, to walk away from that, trusting that we've made that request known, that God uh, will absolutely do what is right. Jesus can be trusted completely. And that takes the pressure off of us. It doesn't mean we can't pray about things more than once or whatever. It's got to do with what's going on in our heart. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying you can't bring a need before the Lord more than once because of this, but I'm saying Mary Mary, let Jesus know what was going on, and it seems that she walked away confident it was handled. It's gonna, it's, that's that's going to be okay now. He knows. I hope that says something to us. It says something to me. The third thing I think we see here, uh, so first I said Jesus cares about the little details of our lives. Secondly, Jesus can be trusted completely. Thirdly, Jesus should be obeyed even when it's risky, even when it's risky. How do I see that here? Um, So let's move down. Uh, Start in verse 6. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, to these servants, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Here's what I'm saying. Uh, first of all, we're going to talk more about this in a second, but these, these stone water pots, these were, these were filled with water for purification rituals. So that means people were washing in them. Okay? That's what Jesus <laughs> has them fill to the brim, turn into wine. And here's what, here's what he says to the servants. Right? Mary said, do whatever he says. And here's what he says. Okay, fill those up. Now, why don't you take a scoop of it and take it to the head waiter. He's going to be the guy in charge. Some people say that in, in that day, it would be traditional to like hire a guy that was almost like the life of the party guy. He would be kind of ahead, ahead of all the servants, but also a guy to make sure, you know, um, the, the party keeps going, right? Because if, if you don't have somebody that's uh, got that personality, like, hey, let's play a game, or hey, let's do this, or, you know, somebody's real excitement and, like, pumping up the volume all the time, you know, sometimes a party can get dead. You ever been to a dead party, and you're, like, you know, texting for an emergency call, like, hey, call me and say something's wrong. You know what I mean? Like, you're trying to get out of there. That's, they didn't want that to happen. The wedding was a big deal, want everyone to have fun. So that, that guy may have been serving as this. Bottom line, he, had, he, had, he was the head waiter. So minimally, he was an authority over these guys. And uh, their job uh, and reputation was, was really at risk here. And Jesus said, take some of that water to that guy and have him drink it. Not like, taste it yourself first. Not like, hey, I'll go first and show you this is okay. Scoop some of that. Take it to him. Take it to the guy in charge, straight to him. That's a risky move. Something about Jesus and the way he rolled, these guys trusted him. They scooped it out and took it to him. How did it go? When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, 
He did not know where it came from. The servants who had drawn the water knew, though. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Most guys serve the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the best wine I've tasted during this whole wedding. Jesus should be obeyed, even when it's risky. What does that mean for you? For some of you, there's been times in your life you know the Lord is asking you to do something, and it doesn't make any sense. It's a scooping water out of the dirty hand water jar, take it to the head waiter kind of situation, right? Based on what you know, the facts you got, your personal experience, what Jesus is asking you to do might not make sense. If you know the Lord of glory is asking something of you, he can be trusted because he will not ask you to do something that's going to lead to your harm. I'm not saying he won't ask you to do something that won't lead to challenge and or difficulty for you, but even in that, he's promised to be with you. And there's purpose in it, there's growth in it, there's something he's doing. Jesus should be obeyed, even when it's risky. And let's be honest, a lot of the times serving Jesus is risky. A lot of times obeying him is risky. It, I promise, a lot of times you're going to have a decision to make. Either I'm going to obey Jesus in this thing, or I'm not. And, and to obey him makes a lot less sense to you than not. He should be obeyed. It's going to lead ultimately to your good and his glory, which is what we should be about. Praise God. The last thing I, I want to point out to you is that Jesus is intentional in all he does, down to the smallest detail. Jesus is intentional in all he does, down to the smallest detail. I would ask you this. Why did Jesus do this miracle this way, right? There's so many ways he could have supplied wine for this wedding. Jesus could have made it rain wine, for example, right? It could have, that could have been the way it went. Everyone just tipped their head back and woo-hoo, right? He could do that. Uh, Jesus could have made all of their cups just instantly fill, like, like the oil in the Old Testament with the woman, right, that by faith kept pouring the oil and they just kept filling. He could have done that. Why, why specifically did he involve these these water pots that were for washing people's hands and purification rituals, uh, which doesn't even seem like maybe the best option, <laughs> right? Like, that seems kind of dirty. Uh, and or <laughs> not even the coolest way, because uh, wine rain, I mean, sounds, sounds pretty cool. And if you're going to bust on the scene with your first miracle, you'd think maybe you'd go a little bigger. Um, why does Jesus do it this way? There's absolutely a reason. Uh, I just want to look at it again. Now, there were six stone water pots, and they were set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Um, let, me, let me read you this verse. I'm talking about the intentionality of the master. This, this is Matthew, the book of Matthew recording the events of the Last Supper, and here's what Jesus said. When he had taken a cup and given thanks... He gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this, this cup, what was in the cup at the Last Supper? This cup, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Of all of the means Jesus had to perform this miracle, to solve the problem of the wine running out at the wedding, why, what is his intentional purpose in using the exact means that he did? These stone water pots were there. They were there for the Jewish purification rituals. What, what was that? What, what were they doing? Those purification rituals, that was before you ate, before you went in the temple, before you did anything, anything. I mean, they got gotten to the point where before you did anything, you were going to wash in these pots. Why did you need to wash in the pots? Why did you need to wash in that water? Because you're sinful. Because you can't be near God. Because you can't eat with your hands. Because you're dirty. You're defiled by sin. And that's what that water represented. And then Jesus comes along. And what does he do? He turns that water, representing that old system, that old way where you were going to have to wash and you still, you knew you had this sense that even after that, you were not worthy to be in the presence of God. He takes that very water, fills it all the way to the brim, and he turns it into wine. He turns it, that, that thing that was a, it was a constant reminder of our, of our inadequacy and our sin and our separation from God, and he turns it into this, this beautiful sign of what's to come, that he, by the power of his blood, was going to eliminate the need for those pots to exist. 
Praise God for his intentionality. When you read these stories, understand they are recorded in the detail they are recorded in for a reason. You could totally miss other six stone water pots. Who cares? It matters so much that Jesus did it that way. And that was one of an infinite possibilities. He could have made wine for this wedding any way he wanted. He could have had a wine river just start pouring down from heaven upon the people. Couldn't he? But no. He took, he took those pots that represented sin and separation in the old system, the law, and he made a declaration with this miracle. He didn't just provide wine for that cute little couple getting married. He was making a point, and he was saying something with this first miracle. I'm coming to fix the problem. I'm coming to do the thing you can't do on yourself. I'm coming to abolish the need for these water pots, and I'm going to do it with my blood. Thank God for the beauty and intentionality. Guys, these are the kind of things that make it for me impossible to understand how people try to treat the Bible like it's just some other book. How do you not see the divinity of this story? How do you not see, this is not something you can just make up and all these intricacies be tied together with such beauty? It's not possible. Nobody's that smart other than God, who by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit wrote these scriptures. Jesus was doing something in this first miracle. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us, does it? That this is the first way. At face value, it doesn't make a lot of sense that this is the way the master decides to first exert his miraculous power upon the earth. But once you understand that it wasn't just about providing wine for this cute young couple getting married, but that he was making a declaration with the way, the specifics of how he did this miracle. He's coming on the scene. He's letting people know I'm here on mission. I'm about to fix this. Watch. Did anybody else understand it? Let's look at verse 11. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I don't know if they totally got it, but to some degree, it wasn't just the fact that Jesus turned that water into wine. They understood what was going on. You got to remember, man, way back when Moses struck the Nile, man, he turned water into blood. That was a curse. See, the, the Jewish people, they knew their history, man. That's one thing. They, 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 they taught it to their children. They understood. And they, it's, it's amazing how much they understood their history and then were able to miss, some of them able to miss how Jesus fulfilled it. But it, it all ties back, right? You go back to Moses as a curse, turning that water into blood. Jesus coming as a blessing, turning this water into wine, which represents his blood. He's undoing the effects of the curse. He's beginning and showing that what he's come to do is, is, is a mission of redemption, reconciliation, salvation for God's people. It's beautiful. God is intentional in all he does. He's doing intentional things in your life, friend. Sometimes you might miss it. There might be stone pot situations, and God does it that way, and it's just weird to you, and you don't totally get what he's doing. Would you get with him? Would you ask him? Would you spend time with him? Seek to understand, God, why are you doing it this way? I wouldn't do it this way. First of all, you need to quit saying that, Right? dang on prideful person, of course God's going to do stuff the way you're not going to do it, because he's, he's bigger than you, he's smarter than you, his thoughts are much higher than yours. There's going to be a lot of things he does you don't understand, but he can be trusted. He's working in the little details, and absolutely 100%, he is intentional down to the very smallest detail. He knows what's going on even when you don't. He's working beauty out of ashes all the time, taking good things, making good things out of dirty, wretched things. He's in the business of reconciliation and redemption, friends. I want to read you what one commentator said on the purpose of miracles. Miracles in Scripture are acts of God that proclaim his sovereign power over creation as well as his commitment to the good of his people. Did you track with that? Miracles in Scripture are acts of God that proclaim his sovereign power over creation as well as his commitment to the good of his people. See, some of you are cool with seeing God doing a miracle and that being a declaration of his sovereign power over all of creation. Some of you are less likely to believe that what God's doing in that miracle is making a de declaration of his commitment to your good. This miracle, this specific miracle, pulls back the veil a little bit and helps us understand the way our God operates. He is working for the good of his people. Small little details like wine at a wedding all the way up to the incredibly big detail of doing it the way he did to send the message that it sent. 
Miracles are often significant because they serve a larger purpose in God's redemptive plan. Testifying to the authenticity of God's messengers who bring his revelation to humanity. This is one of the primary functions of miracles in the scriptural narratives. When miracles occur, they give evidence that God is truly at work and so serve to advance the gospel. Miracles authenticate God's message and his messengers. That is one thing that I want us to stick close to as we work throughout this series and we think about miracles and what God's doing when he performs a miracle. Whether it was then or when it were, whether it was now, it comes down to what is described in verse 11. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. There's always, whatever God's doing, it is tied into his overall redemptive purposes. He's not just going to do a miracle for the sake of doing a miracle. And often... 100% of the time I feel safe doing this. He's not just going to do a miracle to bless you personally or to help somebody individually. He does do it for the good of his people. He does do it to declare that he has good intentions toward his people. But also, always, there is a bigger part and peace and reason and an intentional thing he's doing that fits into his overall redemptive purposes, just like at the wedding feast of Cana. Praise God. I hope you see those things. I hope you're encouraged by those things. I hope you'll believe those things and live in light of them. May we be a people who trust Jesus even with the little things. May we be a people who obey Jesus no matter the cost. And may we be a people who rejoice in and glorify God for the beauty and majesty of every intentional word and action of our Savior King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for all that is here, the deep uh, treasure, the beautiful bounty uh, of just these few verses. Thank you that you were diligent to make sure that these scriptures were recorded for our good so that we could understand and know you, but also to obey you. Thank you for all that can be drawn out of this beautiful account of this miracle. I, I know, Lord, we did not exhaust all that we could learn from this, and so... The fact that we were able to read 11 verses today and see so much of your character and nature, I pray that that would create an appetite, a hunger, and a thirst in your people to dig even further, farther into your word, to not be satisfied with a surface-level reading, but to go and to push deep into what it is you've revealed to us, your intentional, uh, the giving of your word, life-giving truth. Uh, may we understand there's, there's always so much more there for us than we understand at the beginning. Thank you, Lord, that you are absolutely sovereign king over everything, that you're aware of all things, completely omnipotent and omniscient, and yet you've made it clear you care about the little details of our lives. Father, please help us to believe that, and please help us to trust you in that, to bring those things to you, and to experience the joy and peace that comes in being able to conversate with you about those things and to trust you with them. I thank you, Lord, that you have proven yourself worthy of our trust, that we can bring things to you. And even if we don't see the immediate answer we're looking for, Lord, we can leave those things there and know that you will do what is best. Thank you that you've promised to answer our prayers that line up with your will. And if not, you'll change our prayers. Thank you that you're a good, perfect father like that and that you'll deal with us lovingly and mercifully and patiently. Thank you, Master. We love you. I thank you for your intentionality. Thank you that you're never just happenstance or haphazard doing what you're doing, but in every single detail, you're working things for, to, to prove over and over, again and again, your love and mercy, your loving kindness, your faithfulness, your good intentions towards your people. You're always making that so obvious, and yet every single thing that you're doing also plays a part in your overall redemptive purposes, that you have a master plan, that all of this is coming down to a point, and when it does, what we're going to have is the uninhibited relationship we were intended for. It's going to be us and you forever. And that's what we were made for, God. We, we march forward with excitement towards that great and glorious day. We ask you to equip us, Lord, to serve you faithfully on the way, on the journey. We love you, Lord. We trust you. We worship you. You're the only one worthy. Help us, God, to live in light of these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.